Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. It's so good to see you. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And before, you're open our, before we open our Bibles to the text, I had this thought as we were singing. There's this glorious passage in a very small Old Testament prophet called Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, I think it is. It says that the Lord is in your midst, and he is mighty to save. And he delights over us with gladness. He quiets us with his love. And then listen to this. He exults over his people with loud singing. So as we were singing this morning, the Lord, according to this passage in Zephaniah, is, is singing back over us, his people. Now, you may have come in this morning very discouraged with your life situation, with your sin, and you may be down on yourself. Well, you are far worse off in your own nature than you even realize. You may have come in this morning thinking pretty highly of yourself, thinking, you know, I've had a pretty good week, I'm pretty good, well, I'm, I've, I've strung together a, a few successful months or years, things are going well. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And we take all of our stuff and we bring it highs, lows, and we see through a mirror dimly. We don't see ourselves for who we really are. And more importantly, we don't see the Lord for who he is. His mercy and his steadfast love is so rich, so deep, so new every morning. It is unfathomable. Now, opening God's word with God's people, anxious, overconfident, needing grace, scared, hopeless, full of despair, and the Lord is singing over us. (laughs) He's singing over his people right now. If that doesn't make you want to go shadow box and come out swinging, then somebody, ask somebody to take your pulse. Well, good morning. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be back. I've been in my home country of California. It is still part of the United States. Last Sunday, Joseph Davis preached a message that was just absolutely fabulous. If you missed it, please go back and listen to it. It was glorious. This morning, I want us to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31, a short text. If you're visiting with us, we have been working through this year, almost this entire year, a a series through the Gospel of John, and obviously 1 Corinthians is not John. We will pick up the the, the study of John in the new year. We left off at the end of John chapter 7, and we're going to pick back up in John chapter 8 in January. But we're doing some individual messages through this Christmas season. And this morning, I want us to consider 
some words from the Apostle Paul in the middle of a very interesting and somewhat uh, particular chapter of 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is, or 1 Corinthians itself is a letter that Paul has written to a church that he helped to plant, and it was a church that was full of messiness and immorality and sin and pride and all sorts of problems. And yet the Lord loved them, and Paul loved them, and he received word that they were caught up in all sorts of problems. Factions were rising in the church and all sorts of sanctification, maturity issues, and, and Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to give instruction and really exhortation and at times rebuke and correction to the church. And the context of 1 Corinthians 7 is a rather detailed and specific situation that Paul is addressing about marriage and who, how marriage people should treat one another and how unmarried people should posture themselves in this very sinful context of the Corinthian culture. Now, that's the context of 1 Corinthians 7, but I want to use uh, an exhortation that Paul gives in the middle of this chapter in this teaching, and I want to broaden it beyond the context that Paul is speaking about here, and I, I think that's a legitimate uh, step for us to take because the point that Paul makes, his, makes here in 1 Corinthians 7 does not just apply to the situation that he is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 7, which is marriage primarily. I think he uses this principle that we see all throughout the Bible as a, an encouragement in this situation, and we are going to take this principle and apply it to our current situation. So let me read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 31. Again, he has been giving instruction in marriage, and then it's almost as if he zooms out and he gives these words. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as, those, as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, uh, we, we need your help to understand this text. We need your, hope, your, your help to delight in this truth. We need your help to understand it. Please, Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. Go beyond my words and do inscrutable and untraceable things. For my friends that are in this room that do not know you, that are gathered here today out of curiosity or maybe out of self-deception, thinking that they're right with you, but they are not, still trapped in their own self-righteousness, Lord, would you humble them? Would you wound them and then heal them with the gospel? And for my brothers and sisters that are here that know you, humble us afresh, Lord, let us see our great need for Christ and let us see the beauty of the gospel and 
all of its glorious implications so that we might deal with this world as you have called us to. And I pray all of this for your glory and our good. And as we come around the Lord's table on this first Sunday of December and receive communion together as a faith family, Lord, would you meet us in the bread and the cup with your presence. In Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Paul's point here, as he's speaking to this church that's just a mess, is that the situation that they're dealing with really can only be dealt with if they understand their relationship to the world. He, he wants them to zoom out, and he wants them to understand the posture that we as Christians have towards the world. We are at odds with the world. The world has been against Jesus and his people since the beginning. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, and we will eventually get to John 15 in our study of John, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Paul is picking up on this theme in our text in 1 Corinthians 7, and he's saying that we are to have this kind of relationship with the world so that we are not consumed by it. We're not entangled by it. We, we deal with it, obviously, but in a way that we are not trapped by it. We're not beholden to it. And he gives us reasons for that. He says that the time has grown very short and the present form of this world is passing away. Now, it's important for us to understand Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not just a moral exhortation, just be better people and and do good things and don't be entrapped by this world. This exhortation that we find in chapter 7, verses 29 through 31, to not be consumed by this world, to deal with this world in such a way that it doesn't consume you, rests on the foundation of the gospel that he has already taught and preached and reminded the Corinthians about. In fact, if you go to the first chapter, we'll have it on the screen, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you can see Paul tell us, he tells us this gospel very clearly in verse 18, for the word of the cross, the message of Jesus, God the Son, coming to die on a cross to redeem us from our sins. He says, it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skipping down a few verses to verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so he's saying, essentially to them, you're Christians, not because of anything that you've done, you're in Christ, not because of your righteousness, not because of your heritage, or your noble birth, or your education, or your standing in society, but because God, in his sovereign grace, chose you to be his people. And how did he do this? How did he actually bring about your salvation? Well, verse 30 and 31, he goes on and he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The father saved you. He did the work who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's point 
as he's building on all of the things that he's going to say to the Corinthians in this letter, much of them correction and exhortation and rebuke, is that you are a believer. You are in Christ. You are saved. You are redeemed and reconciled because of what God has done despite yourself. And now out of this flows this exhortation to live because you are owned by God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 Verses 19 and 20 says, you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Now, because of that, now how are you to live? And so he says that we should realize that the time is very short. And then he gives these interesting exhortations. Let me just rehash them in our main text. Verse 29, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as they had no goods. So what is Paul saying here when he says to deal with the world as though you had no dealings with it? Well, he is not saying that marriage is unimportant. And we know that he's not literally saying husbands in verse 29, ignore your wives. Of course, that, that's not what he's saying. Because that would contradict what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now, he's not saying don't care about life's ups and downs when he says that you are to mourn as though you're not mourning or you're to rejoice as though you're not rejoicing. He's not calling for a kind of detached, emotionless, robotic existence in this life because that would contradict what he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 where he says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. No, give your whole heart to this life to your wife, to your husband, to your family, to the people around you, to the church, to each other. Live with one another in this open-hearted sort of way. So what is he saying? Well, he's not calling for a kind of escapism. He's not saying, and this is some people in the history of the church have, I think, misinterpreted this passage, that Paul may be saying, okay, Corinthian church, Jesus is coming back literally any day now, so forget it. Just kind of, just, just detach yourself and get ready. That's not what he's saying, because that would contradict what Paul says in the rest of his epistles, where he encourages us to work and to labor and to love and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He's not calling for us to forget about our responsibilities and just hold on for the next couple weeks until Jesus comes back. He is calling for the real and important cares of this world to not eclipse and consume the greater priorities of the Christian life. He's calling for us to prioritize and focus our life in Christ, to know Christ, and to make him known. And I think that is the primary problem with the church at Corinth. And some 2,000 years later, it is still the primary problem for the church in America. And quite frankly, not because we're any better or worse than any other church, it is still our primary problem. I have been alive now for 50 years. I will be 51 in January. I've been a Christian since 1989, I think, is when I came to faith. So what is that? 32 years? <laughs> I did not major in math in college. And I will say, 
not hyperbolically or in any sort of exaggeration, that the cultural moment that we're living in is probably the most intense. Up to this point, many of us have grown up in a culture in America where Christianity and the message of Christianity, while not accepted in a saving way by the majority of our culture, it, it at least was tolerated. And now we live in a culture and country where that is increasingly not the case. Combine this with political divisions, racial tensions, and now differing views on how to handle COVID and vaccines and masks and all sorts of other secondary cultural issues that have served to bring a kind of tension and a kind of entanglement and opportunities for entanglement with the culture that, at least in my lifetime, I have never seen quite so intensely. And I think that this message that Paul is saying to the church is not just for the church in Corinth. It is particularly for us today. He is giving us instruction on how we are to live in this world. So, with this is the point, that we are to live in a way that we deal with the world, but we're not consumed with it. We, we live in it, but we're not entangled by it. How are we to do that? Let me offer three exhortations, three things to remember when dealing with the world as a way of applying Paul's point here in this passage, and then we'll receive communion together. First, remember the gospel and all that it promises. Now, it should be no surprise to you that any message here is, is going to include a reminder about the gospel and its implications. And why do we always need to come back to this like it's a tetherball? Because we, we forget. We are, we, are, we are forgetful people. And we need to remember, the, I think the number one thing we need to keep on the forefront of our mind as we engage this culture, as we live in 21st century America, is we need to remember the most important news and the implications of that news in the life of a believer, and we need constant reminders of it in order to keep our head above the water. So what does it mean to remember the gospel? It means to remember that if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Friends, that's the biggest issue of every person. Do you realize that if you're not a believer, the issue is not that you would sort of improve yourself and get to some place that's kind of morally acceptable by God. Because if that were the case, when is good good enough? That is a dreadful system. When is good good enough? But the Bible presents a very different picture of what it means to be saved or to be a Christian or to be one of God's people. It starts with the very bad news that all of us are by nature and by choice wretched sinners. And we have all rebelled against God. And because God is infinitely holy, our sin deserves an infinite punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus God the Son, God Himself, the perfect, righteous, holy one, became a man and laid down His life on the cross to bear the infinite punishment that should have been ours. 
And he is able to bear that punishment. He's able to extinguish it. He's able to satisfy it because he's not just a good man or an ethical teacher or a righteous man in the flesh. He is the infinitely holy eternal son of God who has more than enough holiness to absorb all the punishment for all the sins of all the people and it only actually absorbs the sin of those who actually trust in him. And so Jesus on the cross makes our justification, our reconciliation, our forgiveness possible. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning we are trusting in Jesus and what he's done, not our own righteousness, not our goodness, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the greatest problem that every person has is not, is not a, a less than ideal life or not even some force of evil. It is a holy God who is against us by our nature because we have all rebelled against him. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a way and only one way to be forgiven, and it is Christ. Remember that, friends. That's the truest thing about you if you're a Christian, is that you have been reconciled to a holy God. That's true about you. Regardless of what you're going to get right or wrong about your stance about this or that, because life can get so cloudy and confusing, the thing that you must wake up is that you have been reconciled to God and you are his and he is yours. In fact, not only are your sins forgiven, but the Bible speaks even in more intimate language when it speaks about salvation. It doesn't just say that you're justified. It says that you are adopted into his family. Romans 8, chapter, 15, uh, chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, and obviously implied in that, or daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you're not just a sinner who's been given a pass, who has to go sit in the corner, but you have been not only declared not guilty, you have been called his own, his child, his son, his daughter, and you are part of his family. <laughs> and God does not let go of any of his children. You have to remember this when you wake up in a world that is against you. Not only are you forgiven, you are adopted. Your future, and this is so important, your future is absolutely sure and certain. No matter how right or wrong you get your remaining days on this earth. Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resur resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, who's the agent in salvation? Who's the one that does it? God himself. To where you're going, to a future, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so think about what the picture Peter's painting for us is that you're, you're saved, you're born again because of what Jesus did on the cross, and you have a promise, inheritance that is imperishable. It's unfading. I have this daily habit of making uh, smoothies, and I chop up bananas, and I 
freeze them and I put them in a blender and I do it here in the office. And so I buy a bunch of bananas, but you can't chop up a fresh banana because it won't be as sweet when you put it in the smoothie. You got to let that baby ripen a little bit, right? You got to let it get some brown spots on it. And I, because I do a lot of them, I have like a bunch of whatever those little clusters of bananas in my office and the staff sometimes will come into my office and they will complain that my office smells like rotting bananas. And then I know it's time to chop them up and freeze them. Friends, friends, your salvation does not rot. (laughs) It stays fresh because it is kept imperishable by God. It's being guarded through faith. He's actually using your imperfect faith that he's given to you And it's being guarded, ready to be finally revealed, the curtain pulled, where everything that you're going through right now will finally have its place to serve the glory of God in your life on that day when the curtain is pulled. So no matter how bad America gets, no matter who's the president, no matter who's not the president, no matter what your stance is on a mask or a vaccine or any other temporary thing, there's coming a day when an eternal curtain will be pulled And you, you will be imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven before a holy God. Friends, you have to know that to get up in the morning and navigate through a broken world. Because if you forget that, you will be so susceptible to the seductive siren song of our culture that will sing a thousand seemingly important but eternally non-consequential songs to you on a daily basis. It's not to say that we are not to engage in culture and be involved in things, but friends, we must wake up remembering the gospel. So not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we adopted into a family, not only is our future certain, it's certain because of a specific thing that happened in history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus And because Jesus has resurrected and defeated death and the grave, he has promised that he is coming back. And in fact, the Bible says some really stunning things about Jesus' resurrection and the implication of his return. It says that we can actually hope in the future resurrection of ourselves and our physical bodies because Jesus himself has been resurrected and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And so he's promised, if we're in Christ, he has said to us that we're going to experience the same victory that he has won for us in his resurrection. That's, I think that's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, he says, if Christ This is his logic, has not been raised, in other words, bodily from the grave, not just in your hearts, not just this idea, but if Christ in his flesh, that he has been resurrected, that he defeated death, if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning if Christ is just a a kind of ethic for you to live a moral life. He says, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
And so Paul is actually putting all of the eggs of his future hope in the basket of the certainty of Jesus's resurrection and victory over sin, death, and the grave. And then at the end of the chapter, he says stunning things about the implications for us as believers. This is what he says in verse 50, and I need the glasses for this. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, our mortal bodies as they are. Nor does the imperishable, or nor does the perishable, in other words, that's what's fading away, inherit the imperishable. Remember what Peter said about our salvation? It's imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, what's Paul saying there? Embedded in that is a reference to the return of Christ whenever that is. I don't mean to get into the timing of that now. I just want us to see the certainty of that future event and use it as a grounds for how to deal with this world. Paul is saying that Jesus is coming back physically and he is resurrected. And in that moment when Jesus comes back, he will resurrect all of his people. And those that are alive at the time will be changed and will be made like him. So that means that if a meteor were to hit this church right now and those of us, all of us were to perish, that means that we immediately, according to other passages in the Bible, would our souls, our spirits, however you want to say it, would immediately go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I think that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, or somewhere thereabouts. You'd, go, you'd be with heaven, you'd be with Christ in heaven right now, the thief on the cross, he, he dies, Jesus says to him before he dies, today, today you will be with me in paradise. But our bodies would go in the ground. And on this future return of Christ, there is going to be this glorious miracle of miracles where we, our resurrected bodies, will be brought back. They will be glorified. They will be changed. We will reunite with our resurrected bodies are you, are you tracking with me? I know. I know this is glorious, right? We will be resurrected. We will be real embodied beings like Jesus. And we will be like him. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say, for this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. In other words, we must be changed and made like Jesus. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen to this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see Paul's reasoning here? You're going somewhere. There's a promise. There's a final glorification. You're going to be fully and finally like Jesus. And so deal with this world in such a way that what you're going to is so far more glorious than what you're dealing with that you unclench your hands from what you're dealing with. And that actually, I think, frees us to deal with what we're dealing with in a more Christ-like way. 
In fact, that's his conclusion in verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, just, just meditate until Jesus returns or just, just, just buy some property in Montana and, you know, wall it off and buy a bunch of guns and, you know, get some crazy wacko website with some strange font and talk about how the world is ending. It's not what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So do you see Paul's logic there? So as you wait, as you look forward, as you get your head above the mess, the fog of this culture, get to work because you know that what you're promised is so far better than what you're dealing with now that you let that serve as motivation to actually give your life away to this world that you are not actually entangled by. Do you see the New Testament logic? Remember the gospel and all that it promises. Point number two. These last two will be quicker, I promise, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Remember the mission of the church, friends. Remember why we're here collectively as a family. You've been adopted. Remember that glorious passage in Romans 8? You're adopted into a family, and we are so connected. We're connected to uh, Emmanuel Gaikwad and Kashal Kale and their congregations in India. We're connected to Raphael and Alan Kajubi and their congregations in Uganda. We're connected to Mount Vernon Baptist Church, my dear friend Aaron Minikoff in Sandy Springs, Georgia, Atlanta area. We're connected to an innumerable host of other brothers and sisters around the world in different cultures and tribes and tongues with whom we are connected with in Christ. We're adopted, we're brothers and sisters, we're family, but we can't possibly actually do life with all of these people on a daily basis because they live so far away. And so God has given us not just this grand universal concept of the church, he's given us the local church and we are called to do life together and he has given us a reason, a purpose. And that purpose is not that we would be here to please ourselves, to entertain ourselves, to cater to our own preferences to complain about things, to be grumpy, to be judgmental of one another. And this church is so good at that. This is not a rebuke. It's just a reminder to keep us from doing this because I've noticed just in my life as a Christian that the older and more established and fruitful a church gets, the bigger it gets. And we started this church almost 17 years ago. This April will be our 17th anniversary the older, the more established, the bigger a church gets, the more vulnerable it gets to mission creep, to a kind of slow drip where the church loses its focus. And we must avoid the temptation to drip and slip and creep into things that God has not called us to do. We are to be a sent people a people who care deeply about being clear about the gospel, about building one another up in the gospel, helping each other grow in Christ, and evangelizing our lost neighbors both locally and abroad. That is the mission of the church. Here's a unique aspect of the church that I think sometimes we don't appreciate. The church is strangely, as it's on this mission, 
And I think sometimes it's helpful to think kind of in military terms. Obviously, I, I came here in the army years ago and I, I was educated and I, I think in those terms and I think they're helpful. In fact, I think the Bible actually uses these types of soldier warfare analogies in the Bible. But, but here's, I think, a helpful contrast that we want to think about when we think about the mission of the church, that the church is both simultaneously a boot camp to train soldiers for combat spiritually, but also a hospital for the weak and wounded from the battle. And it must be both. And there's a strange tension sometimes between those two functions of the church, a kind of launching pad for, for, for soldiers into the fight and a mash unit for those that are weak and wounded from the fight. Some people just want the church to fight, 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 and aggressively just, just crush everything with some, some just sort of definitive, jaw. And some people just want the church to just only give mercy, 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 mercy. And both of those things have elements of truth. But if one overtakes the other, it becomes either a kind of harsh or a too soft of a culture. Both of them go together in a gospel church. Both are necessary. We are a boot camp and a hospital simultaneously at the same time. Because at various times in all of our lives... We will be ready for the fight, and we will need life support, sometimes within the same week. So remember the mission of the church. Thirdly, remember the subtle, slow, plodding power of the ordinary means of grace. Let me read that again, then explain what I mean. Remember the subtle slow, plodding power of the ordinary means of grace. What do I mean by ordinary means of grace? I mean the simple, clear, scriptural exhortations and commandments that the Lord has given his people so that they may grow in grace and Christ-likeness. Just, it's just things that God has called the church to do when they gather, to preach the word to read the word, to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, to gather together and sing together and to pray. Those are simple things. And their power is in their simplicity and their subtlety and the slow plotting effect that if a group of people will simply give themselves to earnestly trying to understand, take in God's word, preach God's word, learn God's word, read God's word. And they will practice baptism as a picture of conversion so that we know who is part of the church by faith. And we will practice a biblical understanding of receiving the Lord's Supper so that we remind one another that this isn't just a mere spiritual tradition that we're doing, but when we come to this table, we are reconfessing on a regular basis that our hope is in Jesus and his broken body and his spilled blood so that we can be reconciled. It reminds us of that. And as we prioritize gathering together as a church, even when we don't want to, and we sit next to that person and we befriend the person who is, shall we say, harder than others to love. And when we pray for one another, that slow, 
unspectacular way of doing life together becomes incredibly powerful and fruitful in the life of a believer. That's what I mean by ordinary means of grace. But because we're Americans, we like spectacular stuff. We like, we like big halftime shows. We like fireworks. We like awesomeness. We like shock and awe. We like to be entertained. We love that stuff. And when we bring that type of mentality to the church, we forsake the subtle, slow, plodding power of taking in God's word, seeing the gospel displayed in baptism, seeing the gospel portrayed in the Lord's Supper, inconveniencing ourselves to gather with a local church and be with people who we would not be with for any other reason than if we were in Christ and praying for one another. And when we do that, glorious things happen over time. Glorious things happen over time. How do you grow in Christ? How do you become more discerning? How do you become stronger and more able to resist the world and deal with the world as you had no dealings with it? You give yourself to these ordinary means of grace. There is no magic eight ball, no silver bullet, no leapfrog of grace. God works through these subtle ways in the life of every believer. We want bigger, better, faster. We want glory, not suffering. And this is not the way of the cross for the Christian. As we prepare for the table, let me read this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to this. And let it focus our minds on Christ as we prepare to come to his table. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I think that's referring to those in Christ who've gone before us, angels, brothers and sisters who have passed on before, who are in some mysterious way witnessing us, who have all had to deal with their own situation and versions of the world, and all of them with failures and successes and hopes and dreams and all of these things. They're watching us. It's this heavenly throng. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring, I think, most prominently to the saints that he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, as, as motivation, then let us lay aside every weight and the sin which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How can we do this? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider that Jesus went to the cross for you and what it has accomplished and what it has promised and what it guarantees and live in this world as though you had no dealings with it. In just a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and we're going to receive communion and who is welcome to come to this table and receive this communion? Those of us who are trusting and believing in Christ, who have been reconciled to him by faith in him and have been born again by 
his spirit. So if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And people that are believers around you are going to file to the table, to the elements closest to them, and they're going to grab a little cup with a wafer of bread and some juice. And if you're not a believer, we're not trying to embarrass you in any way or exclude you or make you feel uncomfortable. We actually want to be very clear with you that you shouldn't take this meal because this is a a family meal. This is something that God has told those that are trusting in Christ to do because what we do when we take this meal is we reconfess, we remember, we examine our lives, and we remember how needy we are before a holy God. And we come and we say again that our hope is in what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what the bread, the wafer represents, his body that was broken for us. And our hope is in his blood, which alone, which was spilled for us, has given us this new covenant where we can be forgiven. And so that's what we're doing when we come to this meal. And by asking you not to come if you're not a believer, it's because we don't want you to say that if you don't yet believe it. But if you do believe this, dear ones, come to this table. And come not based on whether or not some of us are sick and sore. You need a hospital. This this meal is a visible, tangible sign of the, the medicine of the gospel that we all need to take. Examine yourself. Repent of your sin. And come to the table. Come to the table. Run to the Lord. Not because you've had a great week, but because Jesus is sufficient. Run to the Lord. And those of us that are feeling pretty good about ourselves, let us remember that God is not accepting us based on our relative seeming good week. He's accepting us based on His Son. So let us consider Him who endured the cross for us and feast together. Let me pray. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to deal with the world as though we had no dealings with it. Lord, make us a strange and beautiful aroma to the world around us. Give us mercy for one another. Lord, Christians in this room will have all sorts of different opinions about all sorts of important things. May it not fog or distort or cloud what should be the greatest truth about the church is that we are one in Christ and that we have been redeemed by your Son. So we come to this table needy, sick and sore, broken and wounded, confessing afresh our need for Christ. Meet us in this bread and in this cup. And let us come up from this table rejoicing, invigorated to live in this world as you have called us. In Jesus' name.